Heavenly Father, we hear this passage from the Gospel of Luke, and we hear these parables from Matthew. And if we have ears to hear as Christ is commanded, then I pray there is a full stop for us this morning that we recognize, Lord, that this claim to Christ and this walk of faith is costly. That in order to redeem even a single sinner from the depths of hell, you had to give of your own son, his body, his blood upon the cross. And then if we are to claim Christ, we cannot love this world and you at the same time. We cannot have Christ and live the life that the flesh wants to live. We want, Lord, this morning for the song that we just had a chance to sing to become real to us, that Christ is our very life. We don't want to just sing these lyrics and think them sentimental or beautiful and then leave this place this day as though He is not. Father, these parables are striking in that they tell us of the great joy that we can have in Christ and the cost involved. I know, Lord, that many of the words that will come from my sinful tongue will be hard to hear. And so I ask that you would bless my brothers and sisters with ears to hear. Help me to speak only that which you'd have me speak. I pray, Father, as well for a transformation in the hearts and minds of my brothers and sisters. Let this not be a religious activity. But make yourself known. Holy Spirit, change us this morning. Do a mighty work in us, Father, that we might not be subject to the culture and claim Christ and the Christian life and then walk as though the world walks. We want to be people set apart for your glory, and that is costly. We ask, Father, that you would take this teaching from your word and that you would, as we saw last week with the woman in the dough, press it in deep. Let it go so deep, Father, that it captures us and that we find ourselves reevaluating today and tomorrow and next week and this year, wanting above all else to please you and to bring you honor and glory with all that we do, every thought that we have and word that we utter, every action in our life, every relationship and job, we want it to be pleasing to you. And so we ask that you would do this great work, not only to sanctify and make your church holy, but to bring yourself honor and glory. This is your desire, Lord, and so we ask that your will be done. In Christ's name, amen. Okay. Okay, so Matthew 13. If you're not there, please open up your Bibles. Um, These are two parables that are profound in the joy that you should experience and difficult to hear in the costs that are involved. And if you were listening to Bill read the passage from Luke, you get an idea of the background of these two parables. And we've been in the parables now for several weeks. We've been looking at, if you're new or your first time here, we've been looking at one of five of Jesus' sermons, or, or they call them discourses, in the Gospel of Matthew. And we've been now for several weeks in the, what's called the parable discourse. And Jesus, as you saw in verse 34, look with me, in verse 34 of Matthew 13, It said, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. 
I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And so if you remember, Jesus is in a boat, and he's just off the shore of Galilee, and the crowds are gathered on the beaches, and he's teaching from this, his pulpit, this particular boat. And he quotes here, he quotes Psalm 78 too, and he's revealing that he has been teaching in parables, which we know to be short stories, in order to do two things. One, for those who will believe him, he's bringing revelations, the secrets, remember, of the kingdom of God. So that, that, that the believer might know more about Christ and the Father and the Spirit and the church. And he's also teaching in parables for those who reject him. He's saying this will be a sign of judgment, of punishment, because you will not hear even though I am speaking. Look back with me, if you would, at verse 13. This is why Jesus said, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In other words, he's saying, listen, I've done all these miracles and they still don't believe me. I've taught truths that come straight from heaven and they still will not hear me. They will not understand and they will not turn and they refuse to be saved. And so he says in verse 36, I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. What is that? I mean, what has been hidden since the foundation? The quick answer is the gospel, but we know that's not true. The gospel of grace goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve fell, remember, God made a promise that I will send a Savior who will do what? It will crush the serpent's head. I will destroy the power of Satan and sin and death. So certainly the gospel we see, the long-expected coming of this Messiah King, permeates the Old Testament. For those of you who say, I don't read the Old Testament because there is no gospel, you haven't read the Old Testament. It is saturated in the Old Testament. So when he says these things have been hidden since the foundations of the world, he's talking about details. Right? That's what a parable is a mini story. And as we've seen, every little piece, these mini stories tell us something about the big story, which is the story we want to get, and we want to get it down deep in our hearts. The glorious creation, fall, redemption, restoration story. And think about what we've seen thus far. He started in this discourse with the parable of the sower and the seed. Remember what he was saying to the disciples? Listen, many are going to hear the gospel, but most are going to reject it. They won't receive it in their hearts. And he said to the disciples, this is going to be a hard work. Century after century, the gospel will go out and most will reject it. And then he told them the parable of the weeds. And he said, listen, until I come again in glory, the saved and the unsaved, the wheat and the chaff will grow up together. And so the earth will be cohabitated until the final day of judgment. In other words, Christ was not going to immediately establish his rule as judge and do what he said in verse 41, have all causes of sin and lawbreakers cast out of the kingdom. That wasn't going to happen yet. And then he probably realized a bit of discouragement and he encouraged them with the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. And he said, listen, it's going to start off real small, this work of ours, this church, but it's going to grow. And in the end, it's going to be victorious. In the end, God will win. And in the end, you're going to see a glorious gathering of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation surrounding the throne of God, worshiping and adoring the king forever. So he's painting this picture. The gospel had been made known in the Old Testament, but now he's giving us details, secrets, about how this story is going to play out. And this morning, he's going to tell us two more parables. They're short, but they're powerful. The parable of the treasure hidden in the field and the parable of the pearl of great value. So think of the story thus far. He said the gospel is going to go out. 
Many are going to reject it. The church is going to have to grow up together with many unsaved people. It's going to be a battle. In the end, I'm going to win, Jesus says. And who will acquire the kingdom? Who will get in? And this is what he gives us a look into this morning. The men and the women who will actually come in and enter the rest of this king. And so I want to this morning, with the time that I have, I want to talk about three basic things. One, the man in this treasure, this hidden treasure. Number two, the merchant and his pearl. And then number three, the cost for them both. Because they were both were very costly to acquire. So the man in his treasure, the merchant and his pearl, and the cost for them both. How many of you are awake right now? Okay, so listen. I know we've talked about this before. It is important that you strive to stay awake. Your flesh and demonic forces will do everything they can to make you sleepy because this is God's word. So they doesn't want you to hear that. Stay awake. If you need to stand up and walk around the back, that's fine. Hearing is more important. All right? All right, number one, the man and his treasure. Look at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Now, at first glance, you would think, <laughs> what was he doing putting his money in a field? Why didn't he go down to the bank? He's got FDIC insurance there, up to $100,000 per account. Why not do that? There was no such thing as a bank and no such thing as FDIC insurance then. It was common practice, listen, for people who had money to divide it into three parts. They would keep money on hand to do business and make daily transactions. They would keep another stash in fine jewels that they could grab in case they had to flee. And they would take a third part of their treasure and they would actually buy a field and then bury that treasure. Sometimes, though, that person would die and the treasure would be left in the field and no one would know about it until a man like this comes along in the parable and stumbles upon it and says, oh, I'm now going to go buy this field. And so what does he do? He immediately sees the treasure. He covers it up. Why? So no one else can get it. And then he goes and he sells everything that he has to buy the field to have the treasure. He wasn't interested in the field. He was interested in the treasure where the field was. And there's so much discussion about what is the treasure and what is the pearl. I mean, what are these, these, these things of great value? And, and some argue, and I think, well, that they're talking about the kingdom of God, that it is all the precious things that God offers man, the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness that comes from Christ to you freely by grace and the peace that we can have with God. Some argue that it's enjoying the fellowship of the church, of God's people, of having all the promises and all the blessings of heaven given to you freely in Christ. And these are all glorious to be sure, but I, I don't believe that's what the treasure is and I don't believe that's what the pearl is. I believe the treasure and the pearl represents God himself. I believe specifically it is Christ. So when you hear me talk about this treasure, I want you to think Jesus. And when you hear me talk about this priceless pearl, I want you to think Jesus. And the reason I think it's Christ, this eternal life, this kingdom living, Jesus radically redefined for us in the Gospel of John. If you remember John chapter 17, this is how he defines eternal life. John 17, 3, he said, This is eternal life, that they, my people, know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In other words, eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life is knowing God personally and intimately. 
It's having Jesus Christ as the lover of your soul. It's having Jesus Christ as the treasure of your heart. It is this relationship with God through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit that I believe is the ultimate treasure. Infinitely more than all the blessings God will give is God himself. Because you know those treasures without him are worthless. It's knowing him. It's having him. This treasure is worshiping him without sin. This has infinite value attached to it. Worthy, I believe, of selling all that you have to have this precious treasure. If you remember, my beloved, when Moses, in Exodus chapter 33, remember that the, the Israelites had rebelled again and God had said, enough is enough. Moses, I'm going to send you and I'm going to send my people into the promised land. I made that promise. I'm going to give them homes they did not build and vineyards they did not cultivate. There will be milk and honey flowing freely. They'll be free and secure. I will bless them, but I will not go. And Moses said on behalf of the people, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Let us die in the desert. All the things they had grumbled about and complained about, we want food, we want water, we want housing. When it came right down to it, if God was not going to be their treasure, their pearl, they said, Len, we don't want any of it. To have all the promises of God, to have all the hope of heaven, but not have the presence of God is not heaven, it is hell. Each of you were created in the image of God to have God, to know him personally and intimately as a father. Each of you was created in his image to glorify him and enjoy him in his presence forever and ever. So anything short of that falls infinitely short. So you might ask, but if this treasure is the parable of God, then why is it hidden? I mean, God cannot hide. Why is it hidden? A couple reasons, I believe. One, we know that God must reveal himself to us. God must make himself known to man. You cannot know God unless God makes himself known to you. You say, well, why is that? Why can't I wake up one day and know God? The answer you know is because of your own sin. The treasure is hidden in the field because of our sin. Listen, Romans chapter 1. By our own unrighteousness, Paul said, we do what? We suppress the truth. We hide the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to everyone. But we hide it. We put it away. Sin does that, does it not? What was the first thing that Adam and Eve did after they sinned and found the garments and they put it on themselves? They went and did what? They hid from God, right? They hid themselves from the treasure because sin separates us from the one who made us and loves us most. The treasure of knowing our Lord intimately and personally is hidden by our own sin unless God and until God makes himself known to us. Matthew chapter 11, verse 21 Jesus said, no one knows the Son, listen, except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Anyone the Son chooses to reveal the Father to can know the Father. So our poor man, and I believe that he was not a man of much wealth, he's not stumbling through this field and by chance comes upon this treasure. He was drawn by God. He was wooed by God to find this glorious treasure. The Bible makes it very clear that no one comes to him unless the Father draws him. And that word in the Greek means to woo or to entice. What is the result 
when we find the treasure? What was the result for you when you saw Christ for the first time as the Son of God? What is the result? It's the same. It was the same for the man in the field. We're going to see it was the same for the merchant who found the pearl. It is complete and total captivation. When you see Christ, you're awestruck. This is God. When you see Christ for the first time, you are love-bound. You are eternally enamored. That's why we call it in the reform circles irresistible grace. You see Christ, you will be saved. You see Christ, you cannot not be saved. You will be drawn to him because he is the most magnificent, most beautiful, majestic being ever. In the parable, the man is so captivated by the treasure, he goes and sells everything he owns to buy this field. Now, I want you to stop for just a moment and imagine that. He sold everything to buy the field. I want you to think about giving up every single thing in your life to have Christ. Everything. You can't hold on to anything. Christ saying, if you're going to have me, it's me or it's nothing. My beloved, when you see Christ for the first time, when God graciously pulls back the veil of sin. You can't see him because of your sin. God pulls back the veil of sin and you see him for the first time. You get a glimpse of the hidden treasure, the son of God, the pearl of great price, the darling of heaven, and you are rightly overwhelmed with joy. There is no, you cannot respond to Christ inordinately. You say, it's over the top in love. It should be. I'm, I'm exceedingly captivated in joy. It should be. I don't think I'll ever overcome this sense of joy. You should not, and you will not. This is one area where you can't go over the top. Can't get too much whipped cream. Can't get too much frosting on the cake in this response to Jesus Christ. And the reason is, you were created for Him. He created you for Him. He created you to be loved by Him. And so when you see him for the first time and you then sing, Jesus is my life, hallelujah, he is my life, that's the right response. If you see Christ, it should be worship and adoration and love and bowing down and saying, my life is yours, Lord. That's the right response. It's the reasonable response. There is no comparison here. The cost to the man of purchasing of the field, selling everything, you say, that sounds extreme but it was eclipsed by the value of the treasure. He understood that. That's why he bought the field. The cost, my beloved, of dying to yourself and picking up your cross and following Jesus is eclipsed by the treasure of who Christ is. You'd say, there, then my whole life, there is no cost, there is no burden that comes remotely close to having him once you see him. And for those of you who know Christ, you know of what I speak. So first, I, I pray that we see that this kingdom, this man, is acquired here by buying this field and having the treasure who is Jesus. But then our Lord does something really interesting. He tells a very similar parable with a little twist to it. He tells us a parable about a merchant pursuing a pearl. And I believe here he's making a class distinction Several argue that the man who bought the field was either just a working class man or he was poor. But this man, the merchant, was rich. Look at my second point here, the merchant and his pearl, verse 45. I hope you're still with me. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Verse 46, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. This man obviously did not sit down with a financial advisor and talk about the diversification of his portfolio. He sold everything to buy one pearl. Now, unlike the man in the field who, who bought the field, most argue this man was, was well-to-do. He's a wholesale merchant of fine jewels. So he has money to spend. And it says here that he's out looking for, literally it says, the very precious pearl or this priceless pearl. He's looking for the pearl of all pearls. Pearls then were held in such high esteem that people would, ex- would spend extraordinary sums of money to have those that were considered flawless. They were considered jewels of jewels. And we know that this man must have been an expert. He was looking and he found it, so he had the credentials to identify it. And we also know that he was wealthy enough to buy it when he found it. Now we know from other passages, other scripture verses tell us that most people in this class those who are wealthy, those who are academic, the scientific, the well-to-do, will fail to recognize the priceless pearl when they see it. Jesus said, if you remember, to the rich young ruler who came to him and asked him those glorious questions, and our Lord gave him an answer. And then he said, you must sell all of your possessions and then come and follow me. And the man left downcast. Jesus said this, he said, truly I tell you, this is Matthew 19, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's hard to see the priceless pearl when you have lots of wealth. Paul reiterates this truth in 1 Corinthians 1.26. He said, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you of noble birth. Now, if you've shared the gospel long enough here in Silicon Valley, you know how hard this is. Most people who are well-to-do are not fond of the gospel of grace. They have trouble seeing the pearl of great price. And yet, Jesus says, not all. Some will hear. Some of the rich, some of the affluent, some of the scientific and the academic, they will see this priceless pearl, and they too will do the same thing the man did who found the treasure in the field. Look at verse 46. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and did what? He sold all that he had and he bought it. Everything to buy one pearl. He said, that's unreasonable. In truth, it's the most reasonable thing that he could have done. How is that true? In the first parable, we understand that this man made a good transaction. The field didn't cost anything compared to the treasure. Right? So whatever he, he sold everything to buy the field because the treasure was worth a lot more money. And so we said, well, that was, that was a good deal. He made a smart choice. But what about this professional merchant? I mean, he was presumably wealthy. He had money, and yet he goes and does the same thing, selling probably a substantial, substantial estate to buy this one pearl. What would compel him to sell everything to buy this one? What would it be? The answer, of course, if Jesus is showing us that he is the pearl, then it is truly priceless. Right? This pearl that this man found and was willing to spend his life assets to acquire is, listen closely, it is the one. It is the pearl. It's the pearl of all pearls. 
right? It is truly priceless. So whatever this man spent, no matter how much he sold to buy it, was nothing compared to the value of the pearl once he had it. No amount of money would be sufficient to acquire this priceless gem. Now, if we understand Christ to be that pearl, that he then truly is the priceless one. And that means our whole lives, my beloved, to have him. And that is reasonable. There's no one else in his class. He is, listen, he is the most beautiful, most majestic, most loving, most compassionate of all beings. He is. He is the greatest in mercy and grace. He's the greatest in kindness and protection. He is the only one, he is the only one who can satisfy the longing of your hungry soul. Do you know that? We chase after so many things. Relationships, children, money, security, health. And yet he's the only one that can satisfy that deepest longing in your heart. No one, my beloved, no one, without exception, is worthy of all your time and attention, of all your resources than Jesus Christ. He is the priceless pearl. He is the treasure in the field. This merchant was looking to find this pearl that would satisfy him. He was a pearl merchant. By God's grace, you have looked and you have found the satisfaction of Jesus Christ that you have longed for all your life. Some of you don't even know it. Maybe even now. You say, well, that's, that's why I struggle so much. That's why discouragement is part of my everyday life. So like both the man in the field and the merchant, upon coming to see Christ, the ultimate treasure and the priceless pearl, it is imminently reasonable to give up everything to have Jesus. Okay? Everything. We can also say then, it is imminently foolish to hold on to anything you have in this life to forsake Christ. Whatever you have, whatever you want to hold on to, whenever you think, this is what I need, and I have to keep it, to forsake Christ is the height of tautology, foolishness. Jesus said in Mark 8, 36, for what does it profit a man to what? To gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul. It gains him nothing. Nothing now and nothing in the end. So I pray we've seen the reasonableness in both transactions. So I want to ask you a question, a few questions, and then close my last point. If these transactions are so reasonable, giving up everything to have the treasure and the pearl who is Christ, why is it so difficult? Why is it so hard? And are you telling me, Pastor, from these parables that this cost is something I have to pay? It's not a free gift? You've said it's a free gift. Do I have to pay for it or is it free? And if I have to pay for it, why is it so hard to pay? I hope you're still with me because I want to answer this last, some of these questions. My last point, the cost to both the merchant and the cost to the man who bought the field and the treasure. Point number three, the cost for them both. In the first parable, the man sold, and it literally means everything to buy the field to get the treasure. In the second parable, the merchant literally sold everything to buy the pearl. So the question may be, is Jesus saying that somehow with my wealth or my good works or my education or my church attendance, I can buy, I can purchase Christ? 
you are good, reformed, evangelical, southern Baptist, and you know the answer to that. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is what? It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. You can't buy Christ. You can't buy the kingdom. You can't work your way into the kingdom. Do you remember Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8? Do you remember that encounter? Peter and the apostles are laying hands upon people, and the Holy Spirit is coming upon them. And then Simon the sorcerer saw that the Spirit was being given through the laying on of the hands, and he offers the apostles money. And he says, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter turns to him and said, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And then he says to the man, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. You can't buy God. You can't buy the kingdom. You can't work your way in by anything you do. Jesus Christ is received freely by grace. This king of ours gives us this free gift. It is unearned in every way that has always been true going all the way back to the very beginning of hope in Genesis chapter 3. In Isaiah 55, verse 1, listen, here's your Old Testament gospel. The prophet said, God said through the prophet, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why? It's free. It's free. Christ is free. The kingdom is free by grace through faith. In Revelation 21.6, as John had this great vision of Jesus Christ seated upon his throne, our Lord said to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. It's free. Jesus is certainly not teaching that we need to make a lot of money to buy our way in. He's not saying you better load up some really good works. You better be that perfect citizen and that perfect husband and that perfect wife to get in. This gift was purchased by his blood. He bought it, and that's why he can give it freely. It's his. And so he can say to all of us, come and drink, come and eat, because Jesus Christ purchased our debt, our sin in full on the cross with his body and with his blood. And so he can offer us forgiveness. He can offer us access. He can offer us sons, becoming sons and daughters, co-heirs with him, seated upon the throne with him, because the price that had to be paid was the Savior. Christ had to die in order to redeem us. Listen, Christ had to give up everything for you to have the treasure of him. Christ gave up everything, including his own Father, that we might purchase the pearl of great price with his blood, not our own. His atoning sacrifice on the cross was the payment required for you and I and all who repent and believe to come in as sons and daughters into the Father's kingdom. This is our access. So when we say it is free, we do not mean that it was not costly. Let's be very careful here. When I say this is free, it does not mean it did not cost anything. The most precious gift ever purchased was with the blood and broken body of Jesus Christ. So it was infinitely and eternally costly. Nor do I mean when I say that this gift is free that it does not cost us anything. 
right? You cannot, I'll say it again, you cannot buy your way into heaven. You cannot earn your way into heaven. But if you have Christ, it will cost you your life. If Jesus truly becomes yours and you go and you have the treasure and you have the pearl, then just like the merchant and just like the man who bought the field, you got to sell everything in order to have him. Jesus made this clear. Bill read the extended version, Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even what? His own life. Listen, I need you to listen with all your might. He said, you cannot be my disciple. Your own life cannot be loved if you are to have Christ, the treasure, and the pearl. He said, well, how am I supposed to hate my father and hate my mother? The fifth commandment says I'm to honor them and love them. The point is this, nothing else, not your father, your mother, not your job, not your friends, not your retirement, not your health, not your comfort, can hold a position in your heart greater than Jesus. He must be king. He must sit upon the throne in your heart, and therefore, in comparison to everything else, everything else we enjoy, everything else we love, all the desires we have, they must be by comparison to our love for Christ like hatred. That chasm has to be there, my beloved. Now listen, if it's not, we're in trouble. If you say, yeah, I love Jesus, but I love my parents just as much, you're in trouble. If you say, I love Jesus, but I love my job as much, you're in trouble. Jesus Christ must be infinitely more valuable to us and we must be willing to sell everything and give up everything to have him. The field cost the man everything he had. The pearl cost the merchant everything he had. Following Jesus, listen, I pray we can hear this. Following Jesus will cost you everything you have. Everything. Everything and anything in your life that prevents you from having Christ be first in your heart and mind must be sold. Everything and anything in your life that competes with Jesus Christ must be gotten rid of. You say, well, why would I do that? Because Jesus is that valuable. He is that precious. He is that costly. It's an all-or-nothing transaction. You know that, my beloved. You know the gospel. It's all-or-nothing. You can't have Christ and the world. You can't have half of Christ. You can't buy half of the pearl or half of the treasure. It's all-or-nothing. I, I don't think we get this. And I'm not saying us. I just don't think we get this today. I don't think the church believes this today. And yet it's a matter of life and death. If I don't have Christ, I perish if you don't have the pearl, you perish. And yet, we're being told here that means that we have to give up everything to have him. When the man and the merchant sold everything to have and acquire the treasure and the pearl, their lives were being transformed. You know that. Their entire identity, all their livelihood, all their education was sold and given away in order to have the treasure. 
In other words, they, they transferred their life into something else. We are called to transfer our lives into Christ. And this is what we are called to do. To have Christ, you must have no other gods in your life. Nothing in your life, not a person, not a desire, not your career, not your education or your friends or the plans that you have can interfere or supersede with your allegiance and total submission to Jesus as Lord. You say, why are you so passionate about this? Why are you so serious about it? It is life and death. I do believe there are many in the church today who says, who will sing the song, Jesus is my life and he's not their life. You say, well, what's the big deal? The big deal is they'll come before him on that day and they will say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out miracles in your name and do many great things in your name? And he says what? I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. That can't happen. That can't happen. The problem in our cultural moment, and I believe in the church as well, is that we fooled ourselves into thinking we can have both. Hmm? We think I can have Christ and my life as I want it. I can serve God and serve money. I can have Jesus and the world at the same time. And you know all the passages that teach contrary to that. You know them. In other words, we have been taught that we can have the treasure or the pearl with very little or no sacrifice or cost to our own lives. It's the husband that believes he's a good husband and can have a healthy marriage and yet forsake his wife for work and hobbies. We've been told that mothers can be biblical mothers and train up their children in the way they should go and work full-time and go to school full-time. It's being told that our children can be trained to know and love and serve the Lord by only coming to church once a week and having no contact with the word or prayer throughout the week. We've been taught that as employees, we can honor our boss and work unto the Lord and still be late or lazy or dishonest. As church members, we foolishly think that we can be faithful to the word of God helping others in the faith, persevering to the end without being present and active and faithful in the local body. We fooled ourselves like that. We believe, my beloved, that we continue, we can continue in willful, unrepentant sin and still have Christ. The Bible says absolutely not. There are costs involved to following our Lord. He is infinitely worthy and the joy that you should have in acquiring the pearl or the treasure is there, but there are costs involved Every area of our life has costs involved, and our faith is no exception to that. And therefore, by God's grace, the power of the Spirit, we are supposed to fight actively every day against anything and anyone that keeps us from being faithful to Jesus. Now, this is not saying, now listen carefully, that we cannot devote time and attention to great interests in life to work, to family. In fact, I would argue the Bible says you must and that you're required to. We are commanded to do what? To do all things to the glory of God. That means you're going to work the best you can. You're going to be the best husband and the best wife that you can. But it does mean this. Now listen. It means that 
your doing those things can never, ever cause you to forsake simple obedience to Christ. Being the people that God has called you to be in this life as an employer or an employee, as a husband or wife or child, as a friend, never, ever supersedes your allegiance to Jesus. Simple submission to his word. In following Christ, we are commanded, for example, to share the gospel and make disciples. That is a simple, biblical teaching. Everybody in the church is to share the gospel and make disciples. This is simple obedience. So if you say, I have Christ, but I don't share the gospel. I have Christ, and I don't, I'm not being discipled, and I don't disciple. And you say, I want to, but I'm unable or unwilling because it will cost time I do not have. It will cost me friendships I do not want to lose. If I share the gospel, it may jeopardize my standing at work or with my family or with my friends. My beloved Christ is costly. You cannot have Christ and say, listen, I will miss church in order to work. I will miss Sunday school in order to sleep. I will miss Wednesday night prayer in order to watch TV. You can't neglect coming alongside your brothers and sisters to grow them in the faith because you like your alone time. I I can't love that person because I like to be alone. Costs are involved in following Jesus. When you say, I can't pray and I I can't read my Bible and I, I can't do any ministry work, Pastor, because I'm too busy, those are dangerous statements. Christ is costly. If you go and buy the treasure and the pearl, it's your whole life, saints. Before you know Jesus, you are dead in your sins and transgressions. He makes you alive, and he says, now live like this. And he gives us an entire book to show us how to do it. Not by our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, but we are to live differently. Listen to your Lord, Luke 9. As Jesus and the disciples were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you going to count the cost and forsake a home? To another he said, follow me. But the man said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury the dead. But as for you, go proclaim the gospel of God. Are you willing to forsake even family relationships to follow Jesus? Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. These are brutal words from Christ. You can't have the pearl and you can't have the treasure and keep your life as you want it before you were saved by grace. There are costs to have Christ. In our cultural moment, when easy beliefism is practiced in most places, we may fool ourselves into thinking, I can have Christ and it won't cost me much. A little bit. I mean, I got I to gotta give up an hour and a half on Sunday. Oh, you know, that's tough. But all right, all right. If that's what I got to have to have Jesus. Those aren't even the costs. You know that. Church gatherings are not the costs. If you count that as a cost... 
we're in big trouble again. To have the hidden treasure, if I'm reading this parable correctly, you have to sell everything that binds you so that Christ can be first and foremost in your life. To have the pearl, the priceless pearl, you must forsake everything that God hates, everything that keeps you from the simple obedience to the teachings of Jesus Christ that you might live by the Spirit. Simple obedience. And that means by following Christ, you may lose your family. Your parents may reject you. By claiming Christ as Lord and Savior, you may lose friends. Your marriage may disintegrate as a result of Christ being first. Some of you already know in this very room, you lose your country if you follow Christ. All right. So if Jesus is so great, why is this so hard? I mean, if he really is that treasure in the field, that I should buy because that's reasonable, imminently so. And if he is that pearl of great price, why is this so hard? Why is it so difficult paying these things, giving up these things? The answer is in the parable, if you didn't notice it. It's in the first parable and implied in the second. Look at verse 44, and then I'll close. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man, a man found and covered up. Now look at this next part. Then what? In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I believe the merchant, in his joy, sold all that he had so that he could buy the pearl. My beloved, the reason that simple submission to the Word of God, reorienting your life from self to Christ and living a gospel-centered life by faith is so hard because Jesus is not your greatest joy. He's not. That treasure is not that good to you. That pearl is not that priceless to you. When we find our joy, ultimately, in the things of this world, when we say, my greatest joy is food, or clothes, or sex, or money, or power, or work, when our lives functionally look like that, then following Christ becomes a burden, right? If I find my greatest joy in the things of the world and the things of the flesh, then you tell me to follow Christ, and that's just burdensome. But to the man who bought the field and to the merchant who bought the pearl, their costs, their sacrifices, it was nothing to have Christ. They saw it. They were able to sell everything joyfully. Why? Because they saw the treasure. They saw the pearl. And they said, that I must have. And when you see Christ, you know you must have him. And therefore, you're willing to give up everything for him. So I would, I would argue that our struggles with God, our struggles of being simply obedient to his word, to do the very basic things, to be in his word, to be in prayer, to be in community, to do ministry, to come alongside one another, to be present and active and faithful as covenant members, to share the gospel and make disciples. All of these things we struggle with because our joy is not in Christ. This is not an issue of ignorance. Most of you know all the things you're supposed to do. The struggle is desire. We don't desire it because we don't desire Christ first. We don't love one another as we ought because loving each other is time-consuming 
It's hard. People are hard. We're hard to love. It requires our presence and our attention and our resources. But if we love Christ first, if we enjoy the love that Christ has for us first, then we will want to love others sacrificially. The cost will not be a burden. It will be a joy. We fail in simple obedience, whether it be reading our Bibles or praying or being present in a church community because Jesus is not our greatest joy. We don't see him as we should. And when that vision is obscured, listen, when you do not see Christ for who he is, that treasure, that pearl, your life becomes obscured. And you do things and you say things and you relate in ways that you ought not according to Scripture because he is not your greatest joy. When Christ is not seen as the greatest joy and most valuable person in your life, we become inward turned, turned in on ourselves. But according to these parables, the opposite is true. When through the word and through prayer and by God's grace through a biblical community, your vision of Jesus soars, I mean really comes off the pages of Scripture, and becomes real to you, when you see him as he truly is, infinitely more valuable and infinitely more wonderful than your sinful, finite mind can imagine, when he takes his proper place in the throne of your heart as your king, your lord, your savior, your friend, your lover, your everything, then everything can be forsaken for him. You can then live this life you've been called to live. You can run the race with great passion and energy and sacrifice and service, and you'll do it joyfully. You'll do it what? Unto the Lord, because he is your treasure and he is your pearl of great price. It doesn't mean that it won't cost you. Again, it will cost you your life, but you'll willingly give it up. You'd sell your life 10,000 times over to have Christ one time. I would say that, These parables fail miserably in showing the magnitude of the greatness of Jesus Christ and the cost involved. A thousand lives, 10,000 lives to have Jesus Christ. So when you have him and you enjoy him, this burden is not so heavy and this cost is not so expensive. So I'll ask you questions. Have you counted the cost? Have you counted the cost? Did you come into church one day and hear a sermon and say, I want to be baptized. You got baptized and joined the church and you've been going for some time without counting the cost. It's your life. It's your whole life. Do you see from these parables that giving up everything to have Jesus is imminently reasonable? This is not a foolish endeavor. That will be made clear to us when he comes again in glory and the whole world will say, he is the treasure, he is the pearl. Why didn't I give up my life to have him? Are you willing this morning to stop living a double life and faithfully commit to dying to yourself, pick up your cross and follow Jesus? And are you willing to refuse to attempt to do this by the flesh? for your flesh will not help you in this endeavor. But instead, seek to find your joy in Christ 
Press hard into Him. Go to the Word of God. Spend time in prayer. Gather yourselves around believers every day according to Hebrews chapter 3 that your heart might not grow hard by the deceitfulness of sin. Oh, my goodness, my beloved. How we as a people would be different if Christ truly were our greatest joy. How we collectively would be different as a church if He were first on our hearts. We would be sacrificing and serving in ways we can't even begin to imagine right now. But we still are. We're captivated by this world. Christ says, I want to set you free by knowing me. Christ says, I want to set you free by having my joy in you. Does that make sense? These parables are glorious and simultaneously terrifying. Christ is the treasure. Christ is the pearl. He is worthy of you giving up everything to have him. If you are unwilling to do that, you cannot have him. I pray, my beloved, you would reevaluate your life this morning, and we as a church would, that we might ask ourselves, do we really have Christ? Is he, hallelujah, our life? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these words are so hard for me to hear. I can only imagine, Lord, how my brothers and sisters have received it. I pray they were willing this morning by your Spirit to not listen to a man, but to listen to you. That They did not hear the words of a, a sinful fallen creature, but they heard your words. Jesus, you have taught us these very joyful and difficult truths that we might not perish. You have taught us these things that our hearts might be filled with the joy of having you. You are warning us here, Father, not to forsake heaven and Christ to live the life that we want to live here in this earth. I thank you that you have revealed that Christ is costly. Following him is costly. And I'm so thankful, Lord, that you, in showing us the joy we have in Christ, make these burdens light and these costs not too expensive. I ask, Lord, that you would help us as a church count the cost of following Jesus, that we would confess this morning our sins of living a double life, that we would petition you for the joy and the satisfaction in Christ to overcome this double life, and that by your grace, simply live in loving obedience to God. Help us with that, Father, I pray by your Spirit. Transform the hearts and minds of my brothers and sisters. That which the flesh is unable to do, you are willing to do. And so I ask that you would. I thank you for their patience in hearing this sermon. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take the words of your Son, of Jesus Christ, and make them very real to us. In Christ's name, amen.